listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Since we won't be meeting for a while, I did want to kind of just run through some basic stuff that we have covered in this uh, in this process of kind of dispensing of uh, the teaching. Um, I probably don't do a very good job of reviewing where we've where we've been, so I'll just kind of real uh, gently go back to the fundamental idea that we started with is that we live a life of unconsciousness for the most part. We live in a dream uh, from which we wish to awaken, typically. The spiritual journey is really about that wish more than anything else. It's not so much about the awakening. The awakening happens, but it's that wish that kind of guides us into this spaciousness. The unconsciousness that we start off with is basically um, that there is self and other, everything else, that I am in here and everything else in my entire experience is out there somewhere. And this separation then creates uh, a threat for that which feels separate. And we give that which feels separate a name. We call it ego. We also call it the small self. We also call it mind. Okay? I use those terms interchangeably. And with that unconsciousness, the feeling that we're a, sep- we're a separate self and the fact that we, it- we attach to and identify with that separate self creates all sorts of stuff that batters us around. Um, the universe shows up in ways that the small self can't really defend against but it does its best. So it collects things, it grasps for things that it feels will defend it. It avoids things that it thinks will threaten it. So we have the birth of this unconsciousness, which is quite natural if you really think about it. Uh, I've said before, we have all this biological material that helps us see that I am here and everybody else is out there. I mean, we have eyes, we have ears, noses, okay? All of this can help us distinguish, categorize, and compartmentalize. So we're hardwired, actually, to feel threatened. If you go into the wild, you sense this even more readily. So there's nothing wrong with this, but it only allows us to live partially in terms of what the Dharma teaches us. The Dharma teaches us that there is yet more that can be uncovered, that can be experienced. And it's on the outside of this unconsciousness. We go from this small, contracted orientation to something that is infinitely spacious, and that infinite spaciousness then gives us all sorts of wonderful choices. These new choices are essentially the liberation about which the mystics have always spoken. This liberation, this freedom from the constraints of the normal life, the circumstantial existence into 
uh, a non-normal, an awakened life, an ultimate experience in each moment. So what veils this from our sight then is our tendency, when I say our, I mean our egoic tendency to grasp, to hold on to, and to avoid. Those two motions right there, grabbing onto things that will protect, avoiding things that will threaten, that motion right there is the motion of ego. It's a two-dimensional space. I mean, it can only go, I've sometimes called it like an etch-a-sketch. Ego can only move uh, in certain directions. The awakened among us have infinite more, infinitely more choices infinite um, levels of opportunity where they can move. So instead of just in a planar sense, they have a universal sense about them. And this is because, ironically, they're not grasping to anything. They've just let go, just like a flower lets go when it blooms, just like we can let go of the flowers in our hearts we can give them to people. We can give them to situations as we find gratitude in our life. So this separation begins to then kind of fade away. We begin to identify then with something that's way beyond our personality, way beyond our mind, way beyond our ego, way, be way beyond our habits, our habitual orientations. We, we identify with nothing in particular. And in the process of doing that, in the process of kind of letting go of our habitual tendencies, our habitual graspings, our habitual, you know, all that, all that stuff, in that process, something opens. Something awakens as if from a dream. as if from a dream. We begin to watch everything that's going on. We begin to have this amazing capacity to, instead of being caught by our world, caught by everything that arises in our consciousness, we begin to actually be able to watch everything that arises in our consciousness. And as that happens, there's a very exciting event that's occurring. And that event, is nothing other than a dropping away, a, a letting go of everything we've been conditioned to do, everything we have been taught to do by experience. Instead of grasping, we begin to watch that tendency. Instead of identifying with something, this is me or this is mine, this is my way, that is your way. Instead of that compartmentalization and characterization, we begin to watch that activity. And this pathway, if we can continue to watch, this will offer us a pathway towards the infinite. And it's not that we are going to experience necessarily anything new. It's that we're going to consciously recognize what's always been there. The infinity at that moment becomes something that we can consciously begin to weave into our experience. 
instead of craving things, we can study the craving. Instead of resisting things, we can watch the resistance. In that watching, in that witnessing, we begin to literally take apart the mechanisms that create that spin. The craving no longer is so intense because we've, we're watching it, we're not caught by it. The resistance is no longer as intense because we're watching it, we're not caught by it. And at this point, there unfolds kind of this beautiful ceasing of seeking. We're no longer afraid. There's nothing extra that we need. We start seeing that things are just perfect as they are. And when something comes up in our awareness where we can engage in a wise and compassionate way, we are freely available. When we see that people are starving in another part of the world, we can engage their starvation as if it were our own and act from a place of total tenderness, total wisdom, total compassion, total care. We don't spawn more unconsciousness. By fighting, we actually engage consciously with the pain, with the suffering. I've been practicing this myself in a very, very different way. It may sound very trivial, but I am somewhat of a soccer fanatic. And as I flip on the tube, my wife thinks I'm crazy, but at you know, five and six in the morning, as I flip on that tube to watch World Cup, I get to practice feeling their joy as my joy, their anguish as my anguish. And it's wonderful, <laughs> quite fun. It can be at that trivial a level. It can also be as we watch bombs go off in Baghdad. We can also engage our experience at that level. And it actually brings about, there's an, a, a, a compelling push and pull for that which is truly huge in us to act and not just sit on our couch. So they're, they're, I think this is actually quite important. Um, Dharma is profound. The teaching engages us on a profound level, whether it's as simple as watching your favorite soccer team get beaten or win. It's as simple as that. And it's as deep and profound as doing our utmost to compassionately engage with the tragedies, with the cries of the world. When we do that, we start losing this sense, once, once again, of seeking anything. We begin to recognize that all the tools needed for awakening are right here. 
all the tools necessary for deeper consciousness, deepening our own and that the consciousness of others, it's right here. The seeking starts to fall away. The idea of death, instead of being the absolute finitude of this experience, becomes a partner, a conscious partner in the way that we live. We start seeing death in all its forms, not just the end of life, not just the end of my life or my family's life or my loved one's life or my, it's not about the my. Death becomes just the natural falling into the source from which all things arise anyway. We start seeing that every single exhalation is actually the death of breath. We start seeing that nighttime as that sun goes down, that is the death of our day. We develop a whole new relationship to termination. We start seeing everything in this rhythmic arising and ceasing. And it's not scary anymore because ego doesn't have the power to get caught by it. Ego doesn't have the capacity to generate all sorts of great stories about the eventual end of my life, of her life, of his life, of whoever's life, whatever business we might own, whatever experience we might have, or whatever experience we might not want to end, everything will end. And instead of clinging to the lack of permanence, we begin to let go of the impermanence. I know that might, may sound, might sound like a total freaky dichotomy, but it's really true. We begin to just kind of surrender to what is. We meet what is with our total awareness. We watch as it arises, as the birth occurs. We watch as the death occurs with something as trivial as an itch on your cheek while you're sitting in meditation. That's a great one. A pain in your knee. You will see it. You will experience discomfort as you sit in waves. It'll arise and it'll cease. And it'll arise and it'll cease. You will see the same with emotion. Anguish will arise and it'll cease, and it'll arise, and it'll cease. And instead of getting hammered by these waves, we have the opportunity with this practice to begin to surf them. We become an active participant in exactly what's going on from a place of tenderness, from a place of wisdom, from a place of compassion. And this wisdom is nothing short of awakened consciousness. Wisdom reflects the fact that we are all one, that it's all one thing, that all things are temporary, that all things are totally interconnected, interdependent, that all things at their essence are infinite. The minute we can see that deep oneness, 
wisdom arises spontaneously, naturally. Compassion is the activity that is informed by that wisdom. It's recognizing we are all one. That person's glory is mine. That person's pain is mine. I'm going to engage in this world from that place where I can become helpful to everyone, including me, including you, including your beloved, including your family, including all the people that make your day a little bit better, including the people that are hurting, including every single person on this planet. With a heart that big, there is no fear. There is no death. There is only this moment and your ability to dance with it consciously. Strike up the band. So you're saying that we will always experience grief when we lose somebody or something, but by thinking about it ahead of time and preparing yourself, knowing that get, getting this mindset that everything is temporary, it's going to come and leave, that it makes it more bearable? Well, I don't know if it's going to be more bearable. I do know that the teaching points us in this direction. Uh, I like the way you said that. It's almost like we prepare. We have a mindset of preparation, but what that, that mindset of preparation gives way to a non-mindset. So let me flesh that out for you as best I can. When we prepare for the eventual, okay, we immediately change our relationship to the now. Because if we begin looking at those around us that are closest to us, and we begin to recognize, goodness gracious, you know, my, my precious husband or, or my, my dog or my you know, wonderful neighbor is not going to be with me forever. That changes the way you participate with all of those entities right now. So we prepare that, if you will, mindset to get us into a place where we become absolutely intimate with what's going on right now. And if we are absolutely intimate with exactly what's going on right now, mind or a mindset doesn't really have a place to latch on to anything. A mindset can only work as a, as a, uh, a grip, uh, something to grip onto. Mind can grab onto it. It's set, right? And when we participate fully in the recognition of all things, you know, that all things are temporary, that all things are interdependent, that all things at their essence are intimate. They're born from this great infinity and will die to it. When we, when we actually begin getting into that space, the mind 
or the ego, whatever you want to call it, can't set anywhere. So the way you said that is actually quite cool because what it does is we use ego actually to get us seduced into this practice and then it flips and starts recognizing you can't go there, but you already are. And so then it has to change its relationship. It has to change its performance because it's suddenly been seen, just like the wizard is seen, you know? It's no longer the great Oz. It's seen on the stage of mind. It's no longer an actor that can catch us with her monologues. So you're saying in your daily life to just, just always be aware and observe of the rising and the setting and the... And those things that seem so permanent suddenly take on a whole different flavor. They're not permanent. This means that the suffering that we're going through, we recognize as not being permanent. This means that the unquantifiably fantastical grooviness that we feel is not going to last. Everything becomes, sometimes I've <laughs> described it as, everything becomes like the last chocolate chip cookie in the cookie jar, which was always my favorite. <laughs> I always took every bite carefully with that one because there weren't, and he left until mom decided to make more. So when our life becomes, every single moment becomes like the last bite of the chocolate, last chocolate chip cookie, there's a vibe that just, a whole different experience that we bring to our lives and to others. Just to savor every moment. That savoring of every moment means that you are totally plugged into the mystery of every step. First, I want to say that I'm glad to be back. Yeah, it's good to have <laughs> I'm you. I'm working so much. So, <laughs> um, now, I kind of think in this crazy way where my head is somewhat on topic, but at the same time, I'm coming up with so many other thoughts too. And going back to the you know the explanation of compassion, and um, I mean, in, in a sense, we're all essentially bodhisattvas, right? I oh mean, yeah, and. Well, like, what's a what's a bodhisattva to you? Well, there's the the. I know I'm cheating and asking you the question, but but what what is a bodhisattva? Well, there's the the ones that we know in in the books, you know, and then there's just the fact that I myself am striving for the alleviation of suffering for every other human being in the world. That's a bodhisattva, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you ask your question, but I just want to make sure that you can, you can hear something. Are you ready? Can you hear this? All those bodhisattvas that you're reading about are in books, right? All of that is within you. This work is about uncovering those bodhisattvas within you, all of them, mm -hmm. so that your helpfulness to all beings actually becomes a totally open expression of the ancients and the contemporaries for all time. Okay. I'm, I'm sure, I don't know how many people have ever heard the criticism that uh, sometimes Buddhists are, are criticized for, you know, coming up with all these compassionate thoughts, but we just kind of sit on our cushions and, you know, not actually going out and doing something about it. Um, but where do you, you know, if once you're, on this track of trying to co create all this compassion for everyone, 
where do you draw that line between your own spiritual progression and going out and joining the Peace Corps? You know, it just seems like, a, I mean, is it is it true compassion if it's not compassion in action? Does that make any sense? Am I, I making? I, th- I think I'm 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 kind of clear on what you're saying. I guess I would say it's not compassion in action unless it comes from that wisdom that there is no separation so that the action actually becomes a spontaneous sharing of love without clinging okay and so whether you're joining the peace corps or you're scooping ice cream doesn't really matter it's if internally you are engaging internally in this activity in this apprehension and then surrender continually of each moment then what happens is that bodhisattva shows up no matter where he or she is no matter what he or she is doing so i am right with you when it comes to just sitting on your cushion if you're just sitting on your cushion and you stay there and you think that that somehow is going to change things in some strange metaphysical way, I think you aren't engaging in the true teaching. It's a fine teaching. It might be quite comfortable, but it's not the true teaching. The true teaching was actually totally revolutionary. It was about getting involved, but it's about getting involved from a place of total openness as opposed to separation getting involved from a place of separation inevitably leads to certitude and certitude is actually the birth of war so get out there whatever you're doing whatever you're doing i don't care if you're an accountant i don't care whatever it is if you are crunching numbers if you are in your cubicle okay if you are on your commute whatever it happens to be but you are engaged from a place of awakening perpetually, then you are engaging the bodhisattva vow, which is to save all beings. Now, I don't know if that answered your question. Okay. Thank you. I found that question very interesting. Yeah. But I was, because on the same level, I've heard criticism for, you know, people like hermits taking going off on their own and meditating. Mm-hmm. But the criticism has been that they don't necessarily affect people around them where it is a relationship between everyone and everyone in the world. How would that fit into? Oh, I think it fits in. I think it fits in perfectly because I think that doing the work of our inner monk, you know, every one of us has an, an, inner, an inner monk to use contemporary psychological parlance. Some have real strong ones, powerful ones that really want to, you know, and others that just, they keep them way on the other side of the house of consciousness so they don't have to deal with them. If your inner monk shows up and says, get thee to a nunnery, it says, get, you know, go, go go to the mountaintop and stay there, whatever it happens to be, Go for it, but make sure that it's not an indulgent experience 
that can't be shared. If you're going to go to the mountaintop, if you're going to go on to your hermitage, which I think is actually very helpful, the, the more, in fact, we can do that consciously, the more we actually can shake loose a lot of this conditioning that I was talking about earlier. We start recognizing this deep singularity consciously. It starts to show itself in real terms to us when we go up to the mountain. I'm speaking metaphorically, okay? But when, however we do it. The task once that happens, Evan, is to come back. Once that begins to percolate, resonate, just pour out of you, come back and share it. And always make sure that you check back into your hermitage, wherever it happens to be, as a way of kind of recharging those batteries. But to just stay up there, I think just to stay up there, doesn't, it doesn't, the world needs, in my view, this is just my view, my attached view, right? Uh, the world needs this teaching. It's the way out of the mess. It's not the way into the mess. It's the way out of the mess, literally. If, we, if you can watch the mess, okay, and you're not caught by it, you suddenly have an ability to, you, you gain a perspective on what the mess is. And then you can engage in, in the mess from a place of wisdom and compassion. So I, I agree with that criticism. But I also think that it's critical that every one of us give ourselves over to that time on the mountain at some point. And we do it again and again and again at different points in our lives. Very, very, very important to go be still where you don't get interrupted and your cell phone doesn't fire off right as you're about to uh, start meditation. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, just thinking about what the other questions that have been asked and, and what's been said, I also just, you know, have a thought going through my head that sometimes it it is that very action of sort of walking away and separating yourself that isn't self-serving, but it sort of shows other people the way that you can go. Like, you know, you're not, you know, the people that have gone and sat on the mountaintop have been noticed for doing so. And, I mean, none of us would be here had... Buddha not said, I'm going to sit by this tree for a while and see what happens. You're right. And so in a sense, it's, it's not, it, it's in how you look at it. It's indulgent if you say, well, he's only going there for himself. But if you say, hey, what he's doing looks kind of good. Maybe I should try that. You know, it would never look good though, unless he comes, or unless he came back. Right. <laughs> that's that's what I mean. It can't be indulgent if it's if it's brought back and shared openly. The indulgence comes when it's owned, when it's mine. Well, but I'm saying as yeah. soon as as long as someone can see what you're doing or notice what you're doing, already you've given them something. Yes, yes, totally, totally think that's a yeah. It's a neat. It's a neat point. Um. And I think if there's one aspect to this this uh, practice where, where I'm really leaning 
is uh, it's this must be shared, must be shared. This is not something to hang on to, either for us or anybody else. We are here for everyone, everyone. The minute, like you said, I love this line you used. You said, you know, when we separate from ourselves, when we separate from ourselves, Jace, you know what happens? We begin to see everyone within us. Everything is within our awareness. Every person's reality is within this huge, vast awareness of ours. As we separate from ourselves, we begin then to engage naturally in a compassionate way. And that's going to change the world. It always has. I tend to believe that it will continue. Thank you. Thank you.